building the trust in that the feedback I'm giving is pointing us in the right direction and, and it's a cool direction. I love that relationship building. And it also just feels like I'm animating four to six times as much as I normally would have. Hello and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I chat with Riot Games Associate Art Director Lana Bushinsky. Lana shares wonderful stories about her love of video games from a young age, her journey into animation, community in video games, work like in general, but also what it's like to work on something you love. Seeing video games through the eyes of someone who spends their nine to five, like literally bringing them to life, felt a little surreal. That said, I was a little trepidatious going into this interview. I was worried that someone working in games might be a little jaded by the medium, but thankfully, Lana was the polar opposite. Her enthusiasm for games is second to none. I really hope you dig this episode as much as I did. Lana Bashinsky. That's me. Thank you so much for coming on Y Button uh, to chat to me about video games and animation and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I am super thrilled to have you on the show. Um, mm. Specifically, you are like your nine to five is is working in video games. And we'll get into that in a bit. You're the first sort of, I guess, dedicated creator I've had on the show. I've interviewed a couple folks who have uh, who are podcasters and who have also done work in video games with writing and whatnot. But you are focused on animation. And I don't want to... I'm, I'm going to undersell you if I just say you're an animator. So I would love <laughs> it if you told me a bit about what you do uh, sure. for your for your uh, your paycheck. We'll see if I'm able to. I haven't had a lot of I have a lot of practice talking about myself as an animator, but as of like I think literally yesterday I made a Twitter post. I've been officially promoted to associate art director. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And so while I'm trained as an animator and the way I describe being an animator is it's digital puppeteering. We have a 3D puppet with well, literally what we call bones with controls on them that allow us to, you know, shrug the shoulders or, you know, bend the elbow, the finger and holding it as a keyframe, saving that image over time to create moving pictures. So that's animation. But what we do specifically in video games is we uh, interpret the game designer's vision into reality. We help sell what is the ability, what's the action being taken. It's a punch. And how hard is it hitting? Is it a jab or is it like a like a magical punch where he leaps up in the air and then smashes the ground? So we are informing the players of what is hitting them and how hard in collaboration, large collaboration with visual effects and audio. Got it. So that's when you're the way you're describing animation for games, it depending on you know what what that punch should be doing or what type of punch that that is. And this could be forms of running or walking or, or any sort of movement with that character model. Mm -hmm. It's not, I guess, like perfect or like what we perceive in the normal world as perfect. There's probably way, different ways to accentuate different types of, uh, of movements with characters and depending on who that character is, whatnot. Mm -hmm. I think I was actually watching your, your, uh, you did a, a little doc for Riot, which was, um, their super art power hour, yes, uh, right? Yeah. Watching that, um, you, you talk a lot about, uh, like weight and energy and uh, and I, I gather that probably varies from character to character. And again, based on the different moves and, and whatnot. For me, watching that, it's it's sort of eye opening to see you play with sort of I, I, I think of it as like negative space with mm -hmm. the character. Like, what are they doing between each move? Like, are they are they pausing in certain areas? Are they, you know, are certain areas more accentuated than others? I think when I think about animation in general, to me, like bad animation sticks out like a sore thumb. You mm -hmm. can tell when bad animation happens. Good animation, I think, goes un noticed. You just don't perceive it happening. And great animation has a feel to it. And I think that feel you sort of, I think, described it as jazz in that, in that doc. Like cadence. Yeah. Yeah. To me, like jazz and music, it's like what happens, the, the neat, neat parts of it are what happens in the silences, like mm -hmm. the, the anticipation of what's going to happen. So when you're animating these characters, is that how you're perceiving this? Like what, what's the most important part, I guess, of animating a character for you? I mean, it, I think there's a lot of factors that help sort of change that. I don't think I could say that like the most important thing over time, I guess if I had to pick one thing, uh, it would be the timing, uh, the mm. timing and spacing of the character, you know, timing is sort of one of the principles of animation and it's defined 
as you know how long it takes to complete an action. But spacing, which is not captured in the 12 principles, that's like an intrinsic part of that, is how does the action actually happen? And timing and spacing and forms so is so affected by what's the style of the game, what's the mood of the character, what are the, the what are the materials that comprise the thing that you're animating? You know, is it a robot? Is it a person? Is it a monster? Is it a goo? <laughs> you know, all of those things, timing and spacing, I think, informs so much about what those things are and how they are expressed in the context that you see them in, Mm -hmm. uh, that I think that is the thing I find to be the most important and really, really good timing and spacing. I think in a video game, like if you're working on like, let's take League of Legends, a game that I worked on for a year, when you like perfectly execute one of your combos, I feel like as a player, you should feel a rhythm and the animation should know what the combo is and be able to lean into that. So not only does it feel so satisfying to do, it'll actually help train you how to mm. execute it perfectly because you you know you've done it because you get that kind of thing. I, I sort of want to go back a little bit now. When when did you get into animation? Like when did this become a thing for you? I think I made my first animation when I was 15. Um, I was really fortunate that in the city where I'm from, Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada, uh, there's a school. It's changed a lot since I've been there, but I still think they provide excellent education. But it's a, an art-centric school starting in kindergarten all the way through grade 12. So when I was going there, you actually had to submit a portfolio and show that you were genuinely art inclined as a young person. And so I grew up, I did a bunch of acting and stuff growing up. And in high school, it sort of opened up to digital classes. Wow, not just, you know, drama and like painting and sculpting, but the digital art forms, photography, web design, and animation were the three big ones that they introduced you to at the beginning. And animation ended up sort of marrying two things in my life that I loved the most, one of which was playing on computers, playing video games, and acting, which I did a lot of. I am still acting for my career, but I'm not the one who actually presents what's being acted. I can... and. That makes me able to be anything. You know, I can be a super stoic soldier or I can be a crazy creature or I can be a sexy babe. Like all of these things I feel like were open to me through the lens of animation. It's interesting that you say that 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 has that that the piece of like acting as well as marrying it with games. One of my curiosities for you is like, was animation for games like the thing that drew you specifically? Um, I think mm. you sort of just answered that question, to be honest. But for me, it's like animation. My first early days with animation was like just drawing a flip book in school. That like, was my right? first animation was a flip book. There you, so was drawing like in a corner or were you given an assignment to, to do a flip we book? Were given, it was the animation section of this class. And so oh. uh, there was like a bin outside of a Goodwill with a bunch of books that had that were broken, had missing pages, so can't read them. But my teacher chopped them up into chunks of books. So it was like a the right size mm-hmm. for a flip book, like pretty horizontal, but had a ton of pages for you to make an animation. You took Sharpie, we drew right over the, the pages of the these busted up books. It was great. Highly recommend as an activity for anybody who's looking to try one for the first time. Yeah, it's I don't know. I'm still sort of fascinated. It's a weird childish thing to say, but I get fascinated with just by doing little ones. Like you do five frames if you really wanted to and just see something something move and it's just like your imagination just switches on all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's a real visceral feeling of like your imagination actually at work uh, and at play. Do you find and maybe this isn't the case for you, but for me, I, I've dabbled with 3D modeling just for a hot minute. Actually, really truthfully for the uh, the artwork for this podcast, um, it's the uh-huh. only time I've ever done it, but I had a vision. I wanted to try it. And I'm, I'm sitting there working. It was in Blender, I think. Yeah. And, um, and I'd always seen like folks who are working like documentaries of Pixar or whatnot, folks that are working in these sort of like 3D modeling environments or animation environments. And it always struck me as like, that seems extremely difficult to animate and work in something that's 3D with all these colors and wireframes and all this sort of stuff everywhere on a 2D plane. Mm-hmm. Does that ever frustrate you as an animator? Does it is it second nature at this point? It, that's just a, a personal weird question, I think, about the process. I think if I... So I work primarily in gameplay animation uh, and in a type of, again, I'll speak historically because I work in research and development now, so I can't talk about what I actively do, but I worked on MOBAs. I worked on Here's the Storm and League of Legends for a good long time altogether, like uh, seven, seven and a half years. And I, I sort of like, 
every animator I worked with was like, oh, what we wouldn't give for the 2D plane. <laughs> because mm. animating to a 2D plane, you can cheat so much and you can make perfect images. You can make it look exactly like you want it to look. And then if you rotate the camera, it'll look terrible. But we work in video games that you can cheat to the sky, kind of, because it's a top-down isometric view in the MOBA. But you ha- that thing has to look good from all angles. So when I'm work animating in a 3D software, I'm pretty much never just looking at the single plane. Mm-hmm. I'll have a couple cameras set up that I can go to sort of that quad view and see how an animation looks with all four. Every time I'm making a tweak, I hit play and I'm rotating and I'm looking and I'm rotating and I'm looking. And so I don't perceive it as a 2D plane. I perceive it as the 3D space because I'm constantly moving through it. So you're just very naturally kind of able to navigate this space. Yeah. Um, like your brain's doing that work for you. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. You saying that I'm having now this, uh, I've been watching the, um, the double fine documentary that recently mm-hmm. came out. Have you had a chance to watch that? I've watched little bits and pieces, but mm-hmm. I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch the whole thing. Yeah. Watching them toil with VR is a very interesting thing. These, <laughs> when you can look around a corner and a character is not really doing what they're supposed to be doing or in a place that they really shouldn't be, but because you can actually move the environment around, uh, it puts them in all these like pickles where they have to figure out how to get out of it. Uh-huh. I imagine that as things progress that direction that provide a player like full agency over an entire environment, you really have mm-hmm. to keep keep your, you know, an eye out for those sorts of things, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I can't imagine the complications. <laughs> I've never worked in VR, but every time I hear somebody talking about it. It's very uh, interesting to see what, you know, we're working in 3D and we're like, oh, we have to really rotate around the characters. Like, yeah, but do you have to like get like fully underneath the character to make sure the underside of like their nose looks good? No, we still have like our own luxuries, even in a space where we're like, oh, what we wouldn't give for the 2D plane. (laughs) I know VR folks like, oh, what I wouldn't give for the the isometric angle. It'd be so much simpler. No, there's always, you know, grass, big grass is greener energy from that. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, uh, Indulge in the limitations, I guess. Do you, this is more of a logistical tools sort of question again. When you are you're working in Maya or your team is probably working in Maya. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Is it sort of like off lit, like animation is for the animators and it, Anybody, I guess, do you do anything else in Maya other than animate? Does it actually do 3D modeling and, and whatnot? Uh, the 3D modelers, the the model ends up in Maya so that it gets rigged, but they work in all number of, I think, okay. <laughs> I don't actually have quite insight into their pipeline. I think a lot of them do like high poly work in um, ZBrush and texturing maybe in Substance. Like there's mm. a, so many, that's like a foreign land over there. I'm the world's worst character modeler. I'm so bad at it. It hurts me. I've tried. People have openly laughed at me because of how, not in a, in a way they're mean, but because it is so bad. And I know it's so bad. So I can't, I don't know about character modeling. All I know is like, there's a ZBrush file maybe. <laughs> and then eventually it gets to Maya. But I love it there. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That may, that helps answer my question. I was, what I really wanted to get at was like, are there boundaries that are, that are inherently set or that you guys have to set to say like, I'm going to be focused on the animation. Nobody else touched the animation portions of it. I know when I worked in Blender a little bit, um, mm. I know you can, you, I was doing my 3D modeling there, but I know you can also, I think, animate a little bit as well. And so my curiosity was like, do people ever step on each other's toes? Like you do your animation, but then the the modeler might look at it and go say, actually, that's not quite right. I want to push it this way a little bit. Like, oh, But no. it sounds like, it sounds like the tools inherently build those walls so that you get the file you need, you do the animation, you say, here it is, this is the finished thing, you do your thing with it. I've heard like horror stories from people across the industry where those, like the the programs are the same, those natural boundaries are there, but somebody would see something and be like, I actually don't like that. And they just open the animation file and change it. Uh I've not personally experienced that. I don't know anybody directly, like who's like, who's worked on a team with me, who's experienced it from the teams I've worked with, but like it exists. <laughs> I yeah. hope I never find somebody doing that because we'll have the talking to. <laughs> sure. Okay, good. I don't know why I was so curious about that, but it's, I guess the way people work fascinates me a, a bit too. Um, I want to rewind a little bit now. So thank you for giving sort of a, a broad overview of animation and, and your, your role and roles over the years in animation. Um, mm-hmm. But you mentioned something that at the, you know, animation married not only your your passion for acting, but also your early love of video games. Mm-hmm. Um, this podcast in particular is interested in the question of why we care about video games. It's not why we play video games. So going back to the very beginning with you, what was your first introduction to video games? Oh, it is like a shining beacon in my mind. It was like nothing 
in my small child brain had ever felt like impacted me more than playing a video game for the first time because we didn't have them in our house. We didn't have consoles or anything. Eventually we got like a a computer for documents. Yes, of course. That we also put video games on. But the first experience I had with video games, uh, I want to say it was at my friend Alexandra Kay's house. Uh, We're not, I don't know her anymore, but she was a girl I went to elementary school with and she lived close by. She actually listens to the show. I, you know, Allie Kay, still thinking about you, babe. Went downstairs like in her house and they had this couch and the TV's right there and like these devices around it with all these cords. And I was like, this is so weird. Like at my house, we were like, I remember still having a TV that had like a knob on it, like flicked between channels and stuff like that. Like, so all these chords and things, I'm like, what are all these chords? What is all this stuff? And she was like, oh, we're going to play Mario. And I was like, I have no idea. You're saying words that mean nothing to me. And like putting a controller in my hand and being like, the feel of being like, this is a, a thing, like an interesting thing to like hold. It just felt like a cool thing to, to hold. Because like every kid has an imagination of like, oh, this would be like to like fly a spaceship or something like that. It just had a very sci-fi feeling. And she turned on Mario and it was like, cool, that's like a cool cartoon. And then she's like, look, and you press this button and you press this button to run. And I was like, I'm controlling it. Hmm. Like that's an image I'm seeing that looks like a cartoon, but I press this button. It does the thing that I, I'm doing that that's me and it was it blew my tiny mind and immediately like that's the only thing I wanted to do was play video games I thought it was the coolest possible thing we never had them at any time we'd go to somebody's house and be like oh, okay we can definitely go on the trampoline but don't you have a PlayStation why are we being outside when we could be down there playing Jack and Daxter dog let's go exactly <laughs> making friends with people who had the, the latest console just so you could go play it was uh, serendipitous so I never had to like oh, okay. weasel my way into a friendship but everybody I knew did a better have person them. than me <laughs> let me tell you I would my friends like when I was a teenager I remember their family went on vacation but they had one of those doors that had a code and like all the oh kids knew the code and so I would like be like, I'm going to Sarah's house. And my parents would be like, okay, not knowing their family's out of town. And I would just sit there for hours and playing video games by myself, being like, this Amazing. is that best. I don't even have to offer the controller to anybody. It's the best. <laughs> Amazing. So that first time you played, I assume was on an NES, was Mario? Is yes. That, that's your recollection? Yes. What was the first console you owned? <sighs> the first console I owned was a PlayStation 4. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I know. Okay. I, There's a lot of time between <laughs> between an NES and a PS4. This is incredible. I was like, so I never, we never had them at my parents' house. And then I moved out to move to the States to go study animation. And, and I was broke. I was broke as hell. I couldn't afford anything. I could barely afford food. I was briefly homeless. It was terrible. And... I, yeah, I just never, I didn't have a TV until I started working at Blizzard. And then I didn't have a console until, what year is it? 2018? Wow. Were you playing on PC prior? I, I mean, I said console. I probably should have said, like, are, are you, were you gaming on? Uh, yeah, I gamed PC on PC. Stuff? But when I went to university, like, I knew myself so well. I definitely played a ton of video games on the PC. I played a lot of StarCraft. I played a lot of Unreal oh, yeah. Tournament. I used to go to LAN parties. Love, still, still got the video game fix. I used it as like my excuse to socialize. Going out and seeing people with video games was always my go-to thing. Made it frustrating because I never really made any like save progress. Mm. <laughs> like I always had to like you know, build everything from scratch. But when I went and studied in university, the other thing I did is I purchased a Mac instead of a PC because I knew myself and I knew I would not have the self-control to not just play video games all the time. And I'm like, I'm here to study. I'm here to learn. I got to get good at animation so that I can go get in the industry. And in many ways that really paid off. My first job was working at Blizzard, which is what I was trying to do. But in a lot of ways, I felt very behind, like five years of no, not playing any video games other than Smash Brothers at a pals, really. Sure. Um, and so I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do. Gotcha. That That is super fascinating in the sense that growing up with, I guess, limited 
access to games yourself, short of, again, going to friends' houses and whatnot, you actually having the a very similar experience to those who owned consoles but never uh, who rented games and couldn't actually ever save or have save progress too. So mm-hmm. don't feel like you were too you know too left out there that happened yeah. plenty to me i would never rent final fantasy because i'm never actually going to play that yeah and finish it in a week there's no <laughs> point right not to start over again mm-hmm. but even with limited access to to actually playing games yourself on through your own volition you still had a desire to to work in the industry to be a part of it is that mm-hmm. true yeah starcraft really well i will say that when i was like I loved video games and I was like doing all this animation in high school, but I didn't like put those pieces together. I, I needed took a, mm-hmm. like my teacher, my animation teacher in high school was so fantastic. And he's the one who brought me aside and like pointed to the posters on his wall for like the, you know, War, uh, World of Warcraft or Warcraft 3, Frozen Throne and Pixar and all these things. And he goes, look, do you see what you're doing constantly every day here? Do you see these posters? People get paid to make those. Like this could be what you do. And I was like, oh, there's animation in Blizzard games. I could work for Blizzard. And that's all I ever wanted. But animation was just my hobby. Sure. And uh, so StarCraft was like very reliable because back in the day before Battle.net, <laughs> you, just eat, you just rip a copy of StarCraft. You're like, it's LAN party time. Who needs a StarCraft? You need a StarCraft? You just rip a new disc and- <laughs> and then, you know, don't come after me, Blizzard. That's your security fault, not mine. Right. And so I played a ton of StarCraft. And I that's the, that's the thing that really got me going to the animation school. And that's the thing that I could pretty consistently still play. And that's the thing that uh, that's where the game that I worked on for my internship. So it was really like very single minded. <laughs> when I think about StarCraft, I don't think about animation. I see the characters moving around. Mm-hmm. But what, what was it about? The, did you start seeing animation in that and seeing like I could do that i can connect these dots no that uh, i once my teacher pointed out that I, there's two specific moments that i remember looking at animation in video games and being like well that's amazing animation one was the wow the first wow cinematic like the cinematic trailer for oh, it yeah. the thing that always stood out to me was the tauren like taking dust and being like and like shaking mm. their horns and looking out over a vista i was like that was amazing and then the double jump in jack and daxter <laughs> is like i still hails the best double jump in all video game history that's ever been animated it feels so good it has like great audio design it's just a great shapes i love that double jump and those are the only two game times where i was like oh that's animation baby starcraft was just the game i played a ton played against my siblings we i would play with friends we would go online and like somebody would be like like the tactical advisor and somebody's pressing all the buttons as fast as they can you know when you're a small thumb dumb and you don't know any better of like what the meta is or anything like that i didn't have any of that kind of knowledge but when my teacher pointed out like oh look people there are animators who are people getting paid to do what you're doing here at blizzard they do this yeah i was like oh like the cinematics but then i was like oh no starcraft like these little characters are animated they're i recognize that they're animated if you ask me what are they i'm like oh it's a little animated guy but i'm like i could do that and not because Mm. that was the most compelling animation but because it was the game i was most excited about i see now that you're seeing these characters and, and recognizing that those characters are actually animated, I guess fast forward to today, do mm-hmm. you see, like, is it like a Tetris effect sort of thing for you or like the Matrix for you where you see sort of animation everywhere? Like, you know, if you go see the new Super Mario Brothers movie or you are just walking down the street watching passerbys, do you see like the way their weight is shifting and what they're doing? Is it something constant for you or is it like solely I'm at work and that's what I'm going to, that's where I'm focusing and I don't really see it other than that i guess i'd probably define it based upon the fact that i'm an animator i pick up on it or i'm like more hungry to pick up on that stuff i'm gonna lean more towards like matrix side of things definitely when i'm watching a movie i'm like uh, i i say this on uh, the dlc podcast that i'm on quite a bit but like half of my enjoyment of things is like picking them apart and so watching an animated movie and being like oh that was great except for you see that one shot that one shot was not great, great guys and everybody's like you shut up or like I love, I've always loved people watching even before like animation was like a big thing for me, but like seeing other people walk, like watching uh, Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time right now. And every once in a while you get like random security guy on the ship who's in one scene enter a room like before the 
the actual character that's like the principal actor in that scene. And they always have like a hilarious walk. They're always like, I'm a security guy. You can see them acting so hard. And I feel like when I see interesting walks or interesting postures or whatever, I, I definitely, I take, I take note. That's awesome. So it seeps into your, uh, your everyday. Yes. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, I'm sure at some point, maybe for, <laughs> not for you, but for your friends who are like, yeah. just stop picking it apart. I just yeah. want to enjoy it, please. <laughs> yes. Amazing. You, I guess you're not necessarily animating day in and day out now, not in your new role, correct? It's more of an oversight. I haven't animated in months and months and months. Um, Does that kill you? Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. I feel way more creatively empowered than I thought I would uh, in a role where it is more oversight because it's very satisfying. I, so basically sort of set the animation vision for what we're doing by way of like, standing up what I call like my hypothesis of pillars, like animation pillars that we have to validate because it is just a hypothesis. Um, but it, like the target I want the whole animation team to sort of strive for that I think will make this game successful or, or visually will hit the target sure. we're looking to hit. Mm -hmm. And not being like having really the time to go in and be like, and here's an example, but like giving people feedback and seeing their work start curving and hitting the target feels so satisfying and building the trust in that the feedback I'm giving is pointing us in the right direction and, and it's a cool direction. I love that relationship building. And it also just feels like I'm animating four to six times as much as I normally would have sure. because I would have been making my one animation. But now it really does feel like I have a piece of me in in all of their animations because of the feedback I give and because of their willingness to implement it. That's great. It's got to be rewarding, obviously, to see, you know, your vision sort of being done by mm -hmm. others. And I would hope that those that you are leading also feel that they are receiving that sort of the input they're getting from you and probably the feedback they're getting from you is invaluable to to you that they're growing as well as, as you're sort of coaching them along this path. Is that sort of... I hope so. Because sure. I feel like the thing that I always say to my team, and I oversee not just animation right right now, but I'm sort of building into a space where I'm also helping wrangle VFX, character mm. art, and audio to some degree. And I always say to the teams I'm working with, you know, we are all keepers of the artistic vision. So it shouldn't be that everybody is like being bottlenecked by me waiting for feedback from me because I'm the only person who can give it. All of us should be looking at these pillars that we have set out as a hypothesis that we wrote together. We should be looking towards the direction of this game. And all of us should be at every point in time trying to strive for it. And every once in a while, I can give a little bump, a little nudge, and I don't, like a final call might come down to me. But everybody should feel it as empowered as I do to help direct people towards our common vision. That's great. That's great. So going back to you working in, in games, and again, you're not firsthand in the animation, but you are surrounded by this world, uh, more or less 40 hours a week, probably. If, probably I don't know. More. more. Okay. But that's a self-inflicted. Yeah. Well, I think it's, we're all our own worst enemy when it comes yeah. to that. Um, mm -hmm. But you being surrounded in this space and working in this space, you know, for your, your, your job, your nine to five, how does that affect your relationships with games outside of work playing or just enjoyment? Do you, does it, does it drive you nuts? Like, or are you, do you still find it a really rewarding experience? I love playing games. Definitely still my main hobby. Uh, if anything, it sort of drives me to play more games because I love seeing what other people are doing. I love seeing, oh, this game's really amazing. Why is it really amazing? Is it the design? How does the yeah. art support the design? Uh, is it just that it feels great to do these things so that the art's the, really the driving force and that the actual like uh, overall what you're doing in the world is like, ah, I can, can take it or leave it. Um, one of the things I have enjoyed the most in my colleagues and my friends and my husband uh, is associating myself with people who are we're into it because we love it because games are so fun. They are fun to work on because they're collaborative and they're fun to play because you can play together or at least have these experiences and come back and share how your experiences were different playing the same game. And me and my sort of key friend group, we are pretty studious about it in the sense that we will actively be looking at the newest games that are coming out across AAA and indie to play them, to discuss them, to learn from them. And so the only thing that ever drives me crazy in a game, if a game is just not fun, <laughs> then I'm like, oh, this is a waste of my time. But then I just move on. 
Sure. Uh, but uh, I think you know, not every game is trying to accomplish the same thing. So even if I play a game and I'm like, oh, the animation's kind of crappy in this, if the design is really great, my enjoyment of it doesn't get affected. Risk of Rain 2, not like the best animations on anything in the world. Things are constantly just being moved around. Their legs don't move. They're just jumping. But you get it. And that is part of the silliness that impacts my enjoyment of the game in the sense that I enjoy it more because of how silly it is. And the design is so great. And it's such a fun, zany experience that I love it. So you're you're looking at games from, and I think it's natural. I think we all find a little bit of, there's a different thing in every game and that's what keeps us interested in it. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that I sort of have heard you kind of talk around a a bit is the communal aspect of it. Um, Going back to, again, land parties and whatnot, all the way Mm -hmm. to you mentioning working in games, being a collaborative effort, and then just playing together being just a fun thing. Do you think community is one of the the primary reasons that keeps you interested in games or is it truly like that's just one of like a multitude of things that I can key in on like there's not one primary thing reason why I care about video games so much uh yeah I think it's I think it's one of many but it is like a big one of like a couple big ones like when I play video games now I would say my mostly most of my game time is spent playing with my friends mm. Uh, most of my game time, even if it's like a game I've played a bajillion times before, here's the storm. They're not making any new content for it. The balance is not the best it's ever been. (laughs) Some of the characters are very annoying, but we get together, we chat about our weeks, we talk about life and we play a MOBA and that's a fun time. And then like, you know, on the mornings on the weekend is the time to play whatever. You know, I played Ori in the Blind Forest through and so good. That's where I was like, sorry, I'm shutting off all of my friends because mm-hmm. I don't care about you. I only care about Ori. I'm sorry. Goodbye. <laughs> yes. And so the community element is a big thing for me, but it is not certainly not the only thing for me. Sure. Got it. Yeah. It, well, Ori, I'm the same way. I shut out everybody for Ori too. Yeah. I, I was, <laughs> this war, I'm just going to live in this world now. Thank you. This is beautiful and pretty. And and yeah. I mean, Tay Animation and stuff, it's it's just the feels, it just feels good. That's a, that's a game where the feel is really, I think they nailed it. So my husband and I, uh, he's a video game developer as well. Like there's a couple games that we play that's like, no, we are, we'll couch co-op like most things, single player games. Some of them it's like, no, that's a line in the sand. You get to the office. I'm going to be at the TV or vice versa. We'll talk to you when we meet up at these points. (laughs) So we won't even talk to each other when we want to play some of these things. Amazing. Amazing. Do you ever get sick of it? I mean, being again, this being your, I mean, a, a good chunk of your life, uh, I mean, if not all of it, right? No, not all of it, obviously, but it's a pretty decent sized piece of your life. Does it ever just get to be too much? No, I feel like I'm like uh, somebody recently when I was at GDC described it as like a very millennial (laughs) way of thinking is like, I feel very fortunate that, you know, my, I feel very passionate about my career. I've the career I've always described as like the thing that I care most about, (laughs) And I married Jeff because I happen to love him more than I love my career. (laughs) And not like the actual career element of it, but making video games and being a part of that and making it something that is more than a hobby to me and is something Mm -hmm. I take so seriously. And I'm fortunate that this thing that I care about, I have been able to make a career, but I I never get sick of it. I don't, I guess like this is the point of the podcast. Why do I never get sick of it? The things I get sick of are like, and not even sick of, but the things that I find the most exhausting is the part of, especially when we're from home, like how much physical energy and presence I have to bring, get people together, rally the thing. We're making a game, people have fun. Let's go. That gets exhausting sometimes, but not in a way where I'm like, oh, that was exhausting and terrible, mm-hmm. but just in the way that it is physically tiring. And there are sometimes there'll be like a week or two where I don't feel like playing a game. I feel like turning my brain off after work, but that's so that I can have that energy and that excitement to continue what I'm doing. And I feel like I've been able to strike a positive balance in knowing when I need to just read, knowing when I need to just listen to a podcast, go to the gym, whatever it is. I'm pretty good at disengaging when I, when I feel those energy reserves getting low. Got it. Yeah. I, I empathize with that, um, a ton. I think even this, if I'm leading a team meeting or whatever at work, it's like, I, this is my team. These are the people I work with beside all day, every day. I mean, we're remote for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. but I am there, I'm in the trenches with them and have been for the past four five, six years, mm-hmm. but I still get nervous about 
holding a team meeting with them because <laughs> as I have feel like I have to bring some level of energy. I have to like get them amped and pumped and moving forward and motivated. And even a half hour meeting like that at the beginning of the week, it's like, it's draining. I need like hours after that just to like come back. And I find myself as, or I feel like I am sort of naturally extroverted in a way, Mm -hmm. but it's still extremely draining. I think even doing this podcast, right? Like, oh, podcasting is just a conversation with somebody. And no, in the back of my head right now, I'm like thinking, how can I make this fun and interesting for for Lana? How do I not make this a waste of her time? How do I steer this conversation (laughs) in the right way? There's like a million things computing in the back of my mind. And I know after this, I'm just going to be like, oh my God, like, (laughs) is that even good? And then I'm going to doubt myself. And it's just, there's this whole weight to it, right? And so Mm -hmm. knowing like what the thing that you need to decompress after that, it may not be anything. It might just be meditating or whatever. Yes. Um, for me, sometimes it's playing a game. Like I said earlier, it's usually reading a book, but like understanding what those, what those limits are and what it is that's driving you nuts, I think is, uh, um, if it's not the games themselves, which is great, then mm-hmm. understanding what it is. So. Yeah. One of the funniest things about working on Here's the Storm is the whole team was so fired up and, and having so much fun all the time that even when it was like, I'm so tired, Mm. like where it's tough making this thing i can't wait to clock out for lunch so i can play heroes of the storm (laughs) and and then people would like they had to like start making a rule like no starting any heroes games after 1 30 p.m because people were starting to take like two and a half hour lunches because they just wanted to play the thing we're making which was such a funny and weird space to be like oh i'm so tired of making this thing i can't wait to play it yeah (laughs) it was like a great place great problem to have i felt totally yeah that and that actually makes me think of something again, I'm going to have a hard time phrasing this, I think, but like it's around the question of like, why care? But like there is and sort of the passion behind working in the space and even like play, you know, playing games or being interested in games. Is there something for you that is more, it sounds strange to say altruistic um, about games or like higher level with games, but do you feel like you're giving back in any way with games or that you're just doing this because it's fun and satisfying that that piece of you. I don't know if I'm really asking the question the way I want to ask in my head, but like, is there something greater to to games uh, than just it's fun? I think a uh, community, if, if uh, anybody listening to this has ever heard me talk, they're going to be like, oh, here she goes. Um, mm-hmm. Community is so important to me. And like the things that got me through the most challenging times in my life were co- the communities of people that I built, whether it be the people that I went to school with or, you know, my family or the my, my video game team uh, or, and the animation community, like all of those spaces were so value, valuable to me. And the people who sort of saw me and saw potential in me and and cared for me and uplifted me as a part of these communities, it was so valuable. And I attribute so much of what I've been able to do and what I've been able to achieve to those moments that I think everybody working in video games has at least somebody who was that to them in some way, or I hope so. And so I hope that everybody who's out there making games right now would want to be that somebody for somebody else. And so maybe not directly, but through the game they make, if they're making a social game, making sure that there are opportunities for people to come in and build something beautiful themselves and build these spaces for people to engage with each other who have this common interest and build those support groups for themselves. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so by support group, I'm not always talking like, "Ooh, times are tough, but like support group by you're excited about this thing. I'm excited about this thing. Let's both be excited about it. Like that emotional connection that people can have. I think great developers engage with their players in a, in a space that makes them feel seen and enables them to connect with each other in a way that makes them feel happy and excited and a part of something bigger than themselves. Sure. Do you think that's specific to video games? I think... I don't think it's specific to video games, but I think the longevity of it can be specific to video games. Mm. Because the one thing I I find so powerful, like a a question that people have asked me in the past, you know, why video games? Why didn't you go into film? That's like ostensibly the higher form of art as an animator is is Pixar, DreamWorks, Disney, like film animation. But like people who are like, that's my favorite movie. I've watched it. 20 times. And that sounds like a big number to watch a movie. Oh, you watched that movie 20 times? I've played Here's the Storm 20 times this month, you know? And the experience is always different. And like sort of the amount of ownership I feel as a player because of the skill that I brought to the table, it 
changes my experience every time I play. And so I want to playing it more doesn't feel tired or repetitive. So the tail on my experience of that and so how long I would want to engage with people is so much longer because of it. And I feel that's that's unique to video games is replayability is like that those that players can feel like they are a part of the experience. Right. You said two things in there that I think or you saying all this reminds me of like two different angles. I think uh, on DLC a couple of weeks back, Christian made uh, he or maybe it was on my maybe it was on my show. I'm not quite <laughs> sure when when and where I heard it, but he mentioned uh, like the analogy of sports. Like with sports, it can be the same. You're watching the same teams, the same sport over and over and over again, but because there's an inherent uh, you know unpredictability and drama in that and mm-hmm. a lot of other fans are watching the same sport it could be baseball or football or whatever you end up having these conversations about what just happened what you just saw like it's not yeah. nothing is predefined or built it's an event um that cannot be predicted and therefore by the end of it there might be something exciting to share or a moment that was really really engaging mm-hmm. i think same is true for for games especially those of like uh, uh you know, multiplayer social types of, of situations, right? Where people can experience the same thing, the same moments, that sort of, uh, that, that same sort of um, thinking I think can happen. Uh, and then on the other side, I think a lot about, and I've mentioned this before on the show, a lot about like schoolyard conversations when we were kids where, you know, somebody was playing a game and they saw something happen and they would tell all their friends at school, Hey, this cool thing happened in, in this game, or I did this really neat thing. I think that's all inherent to the, the, the agency that a player has with a game that going back to what you said at the very beginning of like you picking up a controller and controlling Mario and I get to make him do that thing. Like we get to make these characters do something, whether that was intended or not within the game, maybe even break the game or explore areas that weren't meant to be seen or what have you, Mm -hmm. um, or just gone further than somebody else did. You have an experience that you're either creating for yourself or other people are seeing that you can then share um, because you're given that agency with a film. We all saw the same film. Like, yeah, there's not much more there, uh, you know, with a book. I'm very curious. They're eager to hear your uh, uh, your book club with Jeff. But um, <laughs> but you're, you're reading the same book, the same story. You might interpret things different or characters might look different in your head. But ultimately, you, you're seeing the same linear story mm-hmm. where that's not necessarily true with games. And even if there is a linear story, the way you approach it could be a combat scenario or what have you. You don't have to do it the same way mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Right. That really resonates with me and to like loop it back into animation i feel like that's one of the things that is so fun about animating for video games uh one of the things that one of my colleagues jason hendrick sort of coined uh, for me i don't know if he heard it somewhere else is like the direct connection to the player as an animator you know as an animator we follow the 12 principles of animation anybody who's listening to this you can go look it up that's sort of the foundation for all how you learn animation and how you create and analyze animation. But one of them is anticipation. So when you see in a film, they'll do different ways of anticipating or a cartoon, like a big punch, you get that big cartoon wind up. And in video games, a lot of times people are like, well, that animation's not very good because there's no anticipation. But the reality is that Jason said is that the player is the anticipation. Mm. The player feels ownership over this thing. I don't need to show them that they're going to punch. The player knows they're going to punch when they hit that button. So the punch has to be happening as soon as they hit it. And that connection, I feel like, is so much about why the experience feels so different, why it doesn't feel repetitive, and why it feels like it has that replayability is because people feel agency, just as you described. I, I, I own this. I am this. I'm doing this. And it's my skill that made this happen this way. Yeah, exactly. Do you, I wouldn't, before we got to talking, I sent you some questions. And one of the questions was, um, are there three to five games that sort of inspired awe for you? But um, I mean, I'm going to put you maybe a little bit on the spot. I'm not sure if they're the same, uh, <laughs> if you've thought about that. But like, are are there games that you can think of that had those moments to you? Those like, I am controlling this, I am this thing or this connection to this this. Uh, character or game? And if not, are there maybe three to five games that just sort of kind of blew your mind in general? Specifically from like an animation perspective or just from my enjoyment of the game perspective? Boy, I don't know both. Um, (laughs) I want to know, I want to know both like from animation, like what are games where you're like, holy shit, like that, that is just the one amazing. And then from gameplay, like you obviously are not just focused on animation. That's not like the, Yes, you're an animator, but you love games. And so I want to hear you know, about games too that have just blown your mind. So from an animation perspective, I, I mentioned sort of two of them already, 
the Jack trilogy and General Jack 2 specifically, right. I think is fantastic. Uh, I talked to some people and I guess I didn't like engage with like reviews and stuff. Apparently got a lot of feedback that it didn't know what it was trying to be. And it was sort of all over the place. And then there's guns, but there's a hoverboard. I love it. I love the variety of stuff in it. And I loved the animation in it. I feel like Naughty Dog was doing so much in that space with their little cutscenes, And I'm like, I mourn the fact they do great work, obviously, but I mourn their animation that they did going from super toony to like only like the no, notoriously crazy hyper realistic right. would love to see them go back and make another Jack game. So that really sucked me animation wise. More recently, the specifically the machines animation and the technical animation skill plus the artistic animation skill for the machines in the Horizon games, Forbidden West and Zero Dawn. I love animating creatures. And so seeing these mm. crazy machines and these creatures work, ooh, I just, that really <laughs> got me when I saw those. It was amazing, amazing. And then uh, I'm trying to think animation-wise. See, this is where I'm like a bad animator. There's so many animators who are so good. They see something they love and they like capture it. They have a folder with a million references. I like play something. I'm like, wow, that was incredible. And then I just move on and like forget it. <laughs> No, you're just, you're a human. I, okay. I, yeah, I don't remember yesterday half the okay. time. That's why I couldn't remember what I heard Christian say it on my show or his show. Or I don't know what's happening anymore. So you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. So yeah. those are like the big, like animation-y ones. And like that wow cinematic really struck me at the time. And yeah, the, the animation wise, the, I'll just leave it at that. I said I'll okay. do them before. Okay. Those are the animation ones, period. Great. Well, the games that like struck me on like my t list of all the top games that I love the most of anything, um, Jedi Knight, Dark Forces 2, and Mysteries of the Sith was like the first game where I was able to like dive in, play online, and like build a community and like, you know, try and get into a, uh, a, a, cl a clan. I was part of the Super Saiyan clan. I loved that game and I loved like breaking the levels, like modding it so it would fill up with water or like, oh, this level that doesn't usually have low gravity now has low gravity. Oh, it's so fun. Like seeing how changing even one rule in a level design would impact the whole experience. And then I loved all the weapon designs in those games. And, and also like the, I remember loving the plot. I just loved the, the single player campaign. I loved those. I loved those games. More recently, uh, Outer Wilds has made my sort of top list of games that blew my mind of all time. The mechanics and the use of the mechanics are so interesting. And like nothing has made me feel more smart than playing that game and like figuring out a puzzle, which is so silly because like they put it there so you'll solve it. But so well designed in such a way that I'm like, I'm a god. <laughs> I'm doing like the final run at the very end of that game. I was like, I played that I couch co-op with my husband. And I was like out of the couch, like running around the apartment, just screaming like, we did it! Ah! Like, like, so feeling that I got beating that game was just like, I'm a genius. Nothing, nobody's ever been smarter than me. And it was so fun and silly. And I love space. I love sci-fi. So it just struck every chord. Sure. Um, those are two big ones. Uh, for me and then I like competitive games and I like puzzle games so The Witness uh, yes. love that one. one so simple but so incredibly well executed simple by way of like yeah puzzles on a, an island <laughs> not yeah, simple literally by way. here they are here's yeah. a puzzle <laughs> do it you can go up to any one of them and if you know how to do it you can just do it Right. But we have to teach you first. So great. Uh, and then competitive gaming. I, Unreal Tournament 2004 was my bread and butter for a really long time. Played some Quake played some uh, Team Fortress 2, uh, and then more recently, MOBAs, League of Legends, and Here's the Storm. I never thought that I could feel so competitive in an online space than playing that. Those, those chunks of games really struck. I've always been super competitive, and I like to think that I'm keeping it under wraps, but people, even when I'm like, what I think is the lightest touch competitive, somebody's like, everybody knows Lana's the most competitive person here, and I'm like, well, how is that possible? But I must just exude it. It must come out of my pores when I'm talking to people, so competitive gaming has always really struck a chord. Got it. Yeah, I've felt that while, while we're talking. I, I don't want to... I'm not, I don't want <laughs> no, to no. mess around. <laughs> Um, no, you, you definitely bring, you, you, you are a very energetic person. I could imagine you bringing that to, to a game. It would be quite a sight and I'm sure quite fun to, to be alongside you or, uh, and terrifying to be on the other side of you. So. <laughs> 
this is going back a little bit, uh, and I'm also uh, being trying to be cognizant of time here. I do have a few more questions for you. Sure. You mentioned something that I think, and I haven't really asked this specifically on the show, but I think it's a sort of appropriate because we all, the entire world just went through an event, Mm -hmm. not saying that we're completely done or, or will ever be, but we went through a pretty traumatic event with the pandemic. Um, I think for a lot of people, and this came up on the last episode I did with, um, with my friend, Brendan Bigley, who's the co-host of uh, the Into the Aether uh, podcast. He's been on uh, DLC a couple of times too. In listening to their show, for me, during the pandemic, again, I wasn't necessarily playing games, although there were some games that I played during the pandemic that really brought me some solace and whatnot. But listening to their podcast specifically brought me a lot of solace. It felt like I was part of a community, even though it was a one-way conversation. I wasn't actively mm-hmm. talking back to them. You know, in, in talking about the pandemic and about my my enthusiasm for the show on that episode, we also talked about games that, or a game specifically, Animal Crossing, uh, was it New Horizons or what have you, that had come out like right at the top of the pandemic that really helped a lot of people get through it. I'm curious if you found if, if there was um, a game or games that you were playing that might have helped you through uh, through the pandemic quite specifically. Yeah, there's a couple. Obviously, the pandemic changed the world dramatically, but I, the, the way that it changed my life is that it got more of my friends who historically have like never, oh, like yeah. one, one of them said point blank to my face, I'm never going to log onto the computer and just talk to you on the internet. <laughs> Uh, when I moved countries and I was like, I guess that's fair. I don't sympathize, but sure. And like all of my friends who I'm still like super tight with since high school suddenly are like online being like, I don't know what to do. I'm in my apartment. Is there a game I should play? You know, games. (laughs) Although let me tell you, if I never see that interface again, I'll be happy. Jackbox is the game that really got them online in the first time. I don't care for Jackbox games. I'm terrible at Quiplash and I hate it because I'm competitive. Um, I'll pl- I will play Drawful all the time. Uh, anyone who wants to do that one is great. But like, it was wonderful to see those friends of mine that I basically only talk to sometimes through text or Instagram embracing games in a way that they never have. And being able to connect with them in a space that was so near and dear to my heart, even though it's like, well, just take one more step and let's play something like Raft or a survival game or something sillier Mm -hmm. together. That would be what I would love. It was wonderful to be able to feel very like much more connected with them than I ever had been at a time where everything else felt very disconnected. So that was one sort of side of pandemic gaming. And the other side was trying a bunch of weird games with pals we again the MOBA uh, and I did pick up playing Fortnite. Those those two sort of were the mainstays. Sure, yeah. But between that, unlike my one friend, we, we had like girls' night and we would go play raft for a long time, which is like a very silly survival game where you're building a big raft and there's like a crazy plot that I basically felt like the ship's commander because I was like very into the plot and finding how to do things and they would just sort of do everything I would tell them. I think there's a shark. Somebody be on shark duty. You know, somebody, I need you to go collect this from the island and come back. We're going to build this, blah, 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 blah. And I felt like it was like manager simulator for me. (laughs) Um, But that was like a very fun thing. We played Deep Rock Galactic, like trying a couple like different interesting co-op experiences was uh, sort of the other side of it with this other group of friends. So those were the, the two sort of sections of gaming other than my mainstay competitive crew. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah. I, and I've heard that story, I think, from th- that was common with a lot of people that people who hadn't played were actually getting into it. My closest example, I was obviously playing stuff during the pandemic, but uh, my wife doesn't play games at all. She couldn't care less about it, uh, mm-hmm. but she knows that I love it. Um, and she sort of feeds that beast a little bit. Uh, and she'll play Mario Kart with me and whatnot. She likes playing Mario Kart. But when that Animal Crossing game came out, Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of said, Hey, you should, ch- let's just mess around with this together and, and play around. She never actually got to playing it herself, but she would like first thing in the morning in those early days of the pandemic was like, all right, get our coffee, get our breakfast. Let's sit down, jump on our Island and like start collecting things or, or, uh, you know, jumping to other people's islands or whatever. She was like just as into it as our morning routine as I was. And it was just yeah. like fun to watch her sort of get it, uh, mm-hmm. and understand the communal aspect of it. So I, I don't that. know. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Games are obviously they're still massive, but in sort of certain elements of main culture, I feel like they still have, it's not that they have bad press it's that people still perceive them as like, Oh, you play games. What a nerd. Or like, 
they don't understand that what what's your favorite type of thing to do there is a video game experience out there for you that you will you will love it is yes. not just shooters and blood and gore and it's not just D&D oh the nerd club it's like there's so much out there for people right and a massive variety of experiences and i i the more that i can tell everybody about that i would love to bring joy to their life yeah do you feel any reservation with showing your enthusiasm around games to anybody i do i i'm just the like uh, i have deep reservations about saying i enjoy video games or i read video game news and listen to video game podcasts or even do a video game podcast oh um, i think that's i actually have more reservations about telling people that i do podcasts that i <laughs> that oh i do gosh. about telling them that i do video <laughs> games um i feel like you know it's a good barometer if i go up to somebody i'm like oh yeah what's my main hobby i play and i make video games and they're like ew i'm like great now i know that we don't have to be friends <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but podcasting, I feel like podcast has like the stigma of, oh, everybody you know has a podcast. Sure. So, but I love it. I mean, I listen to them. Everybody listens to them for like a very normal thing. And I feel like every podcast that I've been on here, I mean, I was so like, thank you so much for thinking of me and wanting to have me here. I was so excited to talk to you. I love uh, being on the DLC with Jeff and Christian. But that's the thing that I always feel like telling somebody like, oh, I have a podcast. Do you want to listen to it? I almost feel like I'm like, I have great opinions and I'm funny and you'll love to listen to this. Please listen to me talk for an hour. Feels like I worry that I'll be perceived as like so entitled and telling mm. somebody I'm worth listening to that I struggle. I feel self-conscious about being like, yeah, listen to me. Sure. <laughs> but I love talking and I, I love listening to them. So I don't, I shouldn't, I should just break out of that. But no, I get it. I get it. I, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you don't have that reservation about games. I don't know what it is baked into me. And I think this is one re one way of me trying to exercise that demon a little bit is like, yeah. I just need to get my voice out there and tell people and stop being so like, yeah, I like video games. Uh, and I also like <laughs> reading books. See all these books. I like reading those books. Those books are good. That's so fat. Have you had like experiences like where, like what has built this up in you? Is it, have you had experiences where you've been like, oh, I like video games and somebody's like, what a loser. Or like, where did that come from? Do you think? I think it was just growing up as a kid, it, you know, video games were for kids. They were, I mean, truth, truly, they were like toys for like little boys, basically yeah. like oh, yeah. marketed at me as a demographic specifically. Right. And I think that's how it was like baked into society at that point. Like that's where it started. Like these are just toys for kids. And that's all they'll ever be. And I know, you know, growing up with the medium and seeing like generation after generation, these things are evolving and growing. And I'm extremely interested in what they're doing with story and how they're involving people. I think one of the big things that I really care about is like, this is a thing that can let other people have fun. And I really enjoy when people can have fun and experience wonder. And the more it can bring, I think it's a very wondrous medium too, um, because anything can be done in it and mm -hmm. um, bringing that to more and more people, um, whether it's through you know, something as traumatic as a pandemic and all of a sudden people start playing and realizing how kind of cool these things are or people who have always wanted to play and never been able to because of accessibility reasons. And now we're starting to, I truly think we're only scratching the surface around what accessibility means in games, Agreed. but bringing that amount of joy to that contingent, I think is really cool. Um, but I don't think the larger society sees that. And I think I, I was, this is going to get into like some deep, <laughs> deep, deeper things. I think like I kind of told myself at some point you need to take yourself seriously or just be like a serious person and follow a serious trajectory. And that's going to, you know, make you successful or, or, you know, be taken seriously by your friends and family. And within my family, I didn't feel like I had a lot of, of other folks who enjoyed games. My brother is five years younger than me and he played games, but we had a bit of an age gap and we weren't playing quite the same thing. So there wasn't much there. Yes. I talked to uh, about games with my friends at school, but at some point I think everybody dropped off at games. We started focusing more on like skateboarding and sports and joining a band. I joined a punk band at one point, which that became my life. And I kind of removed myself from games even, mm -hmm. but there was just something that always kept ticking in me that I saw that wasn't for every, not everybody thought of it the same way. And I, the, I think the last thing I'll say there too is like when I was in high school, being part of like computer class felt like I, it, it was something that would, you could get your ass beat for. Like that's mm -hmm. what the nerds do. The town I grew up in was very much like you're either going to be playing football or you're going to, again, join a punk band um, or be popular. You cannot be one of the nerds. Are you from Michigan? I'm not from, <laughs> no. Uh, Central California. Um, 
yeah, it's <laughs> sort of, I, I hate saying cow town, commuter town sort of place, but it felt yeah. very much like it's either, it's either football or you get the hell out. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's I, for anybody who's listening to this from my town, I apologize if that offends anybody, but that's just how <laughs> it felt for me. And if I wanted to engage in something that revolved around a quote unquote nerdy hobby, whether it was computer programming or playing video games, that that's not something that I would really disclose because that wasn't, didn't feel acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think that just sticks with me in a weird way. So that's fascinating. I feel like now one of the things that I feel very empowered by is, you know, well, I think forever is telling people that I was into video games was always like a weird act of defiance, like as a woman in a space that is marketed sure. or for a long time was marketed at little boys, as you said, mm-hmm. and uh, still is getting better, but still persists to be a male dominated industry. I I always like being like, I'm into video games and having people, I like feed off your doubt. Tell me that you don't think I do it. Tell me you don't think I can kind of thing. But the thing that I feel like really empowers me now is like everybody who's like, I am not playing video games, but I do lock in, log into my health app every day. And if I do this daily quest, I mean, mm-hmm. daily task, it gives me a thumbs up. And I'm like, everybody's lives are gamified at this point. They don't sure. realize how much game games and the ideas like that, like spawn video games and has made a massive industry are a part of their everyday life and everything that they do. And the gamification of the world is around them. It's like, okay, you don't play a video game. You play a more boring game called My Fitness Pal, but that's right. still a game, baby. And so I would sort of throw it. <laughs> back at anybody who's like it's just it's it's part of everything and so somebody who thinks they're not playing a game they are i'm just playing a more fun one than you <laughs> right yeah yeah no that's a good way to put it i think i had this conversation with my mother-in-law at one point i was telling her about the rings on the apple watch and like the fitness rings and like that's a concept from games like that you yeah. you are wanting to complete this for some reason like that's a gamified <laughs> thing and it's a very smart one too because if you yeah. don't see those rings are closed it's going to drive you insane and so it's actually mm-hmm. doing something beneficial for you so yeah um those are those are all wonderful points that it's everywhere i i know we're running kind of running out of time at this point my last question for you is there anything that excites you about the future of games uh i think you kind of touched on it uh just very briefly i think the thing that excites me about the future's future of games is accessibility mm. and accessibility yep. in the traditional sense of you know people who are uh, visually impaired or physically impaired in some way still being able to play video games and engage in video games but also accessibility by way of platform accessibility and global accessibility. People who are, are, are in regions where it's tough to get internet, it's tough to sure, like yeah. provide those that, that such a fun resource for people around the world. I am excited to, to see more people playing games and finding joy in this way and finding escape if they need to find escape in this way and finding themselves immersed in something in a world that they never thought they could outside of a book or a movie and feeling that feeling that agency. So I'm excited to see more people play video games, I think is number one sort of global idea. The other thing that excites me about the future is I'm working on a video game. I hope I get to show the world someday. That's my number one most exciting thing is hopefully someday I can share the video game I'm working on. (laughs) Very self-absorbed answer there, but uh, I think we're making something cool and I can't wait to share with people. I'm excited to see it. You know, yes, uh, play your game, listen to your podcasts, uh, all all of the above. Me, 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 me. Um, (laughs) No, that's that's exciting. I I can't even imagine what it, I mean, I literally can't imagine what it must feel like to be part of a game, ship a game, and just see how people are receiving it, enjoying it. Um, And the games you've been a part of, you know, you are world renowned and, and you know, people love them. People love your work and the team's work. And I think that's got to be very, very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Definitely. On that note, I think we, uh, we can wrap up here. Is there anything you want to shout out um, or uh, places people can find you if they want more Lana in their life? Sure. Uh, if you want more Lana in your life, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Vimeo or basically anywhere at Latienai. That's L-A-T-I-E-N-I-E. Uh, If you want to see more of the work that I do with Riot or ask specific questions of the animation community at Riot, I also run the Twitter account and the Twitch account for the Riot animation team. We are the Rat Animators. So that is at R-A-T Animators on Twitter and Twitch. Awesome. Well, 
Thank you so much, Lana. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm just so thrilled to have you. This has been uh, a tremendous fun for me and I hope for all the listeners too. So This has been awesome. I hope everybody enjoys it. Thanks, Kyle. One more big thank you to Lana for joining the show. I recommend watching Lana's episode of the Riot Games Super Art Power Hour. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Lana is also a fairly regular guest on the DLC podcast with Jeff Kanata and Christian Spicer. If you become a patron of that show, you can hear Lana weekly as she shoots the breeze with Jeff and Christian on the paid DLC program. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. If you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. You can also find me on Mastodon at Kyle Starr with two R's at mastodon.social. This episode was produced by the wonderful AJ Filari. Our theme song was written by Childstar, who's me and Scott Wilkie. You can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button. And remember, when you press Y, ask why. Lana Basinski, I'm going to screw it. Hang on. That's another <laughs> I have. I am so freaked out of of mispronouncing your last name. I have a hard time doing it. Bushinsky. 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 Like the noise a sheep makes, and then like your shin, and then the sport. Bush. Bush. I don't know why my mouth has trouble with this. <laughs> Bushinsky. Bushinsky. Think of it as B U H. Does that help? Bushinsky. B U H. Bushinsky. Bushinsky. Yeah. Yeah. Lana Bashinsky. That's me. I'm a Lana Bashinsky. <laughs> I'll do a cold open of this. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Lana Bashinsky. Oh my God. I can't do it. Why can't I say your name? <laughs> You're not the first. You will not be the last. <laughs> oh my God. This is so embarrassing. I've been like freaking out about this for nights. Lana, <clears throat> now I didn't even say your first name right. <laughs> Lana Bushinsky. Did I get that right? Pretty good. Uh, Bushin, Bushinsky. 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 Yeah. Lana Bushinsky. That's me.